you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 16. We're coming back to looking at Genesis after a break from the Easter season. And uh, we're reading the whole of the chapter of Genesis 16. And uh, before we read it, it comes to it's, you know the expression, my way, or our way, or the highway? Where our first home in Austria, there was a little, there was a, there was a little uh, exhibition road called My Way. And it was just a, some kind of exhibition of life. One of the more, if you watch Basil Fawlty at all, if you want to admit to that, one of the more memorable Fawlty Tower scenes is when Basil is determined not to use the builders that Sybil want, you know, wants to use. And instead he uses a cowboy called O'Reilly. I don't know whether you remember the O'Reilly. And when Sybil comes home, she realises O'Reilly has done the work and she calls the experts back who says that the work that O'Reilly has done is very dangerous and the house is about to fall down. In Genesis 16, we see a DIY disaster. Now, I can't really quote any illustrations from my own life because I'm so bad at DIY. I can hardly change a light bulb. But... um, but here, but here we have a DIY disaster, not because Abraham is building a house, but because in his relationship with the Lord, he and his wife decide to do it their way. And it ends up to be a complete disaster. You get yourself into real trouble if you do a job in your house that you, are, that you really shouldn't even start. But it's far worse to take something into your own hands which should be left for the Lord. And Abraham and Sarai learned this the hard way. In 1892, um, I came across the story of a gentleman in America called Frank Lenz. And Frank Lenz decided he would ride his pedal bike around the whole world. This is in 1892. You may be able to do it in 2021, but in 1892 it was a different kettle of fish. And he started out in New York City and he went west through his hometown of Pittsburgh. He went through Chicago, Minneapolis, and he rode his bike down to San Francisco. And he caught a boat, he didn't ride, thankfully, he caught a boat to Japan. And then he rode his bike across Japan. And then he caught another boat to China. And though the roads were terrible and freezing, in six months he rode his bike all the way across China into Burma where he caught another boat to Calcutta and he rode across India. And then he got another boat and went to Persia. And he rode his bike to Turkey, which today is Turkey. And it was 1894, two years after he started, and no one ever heard from him again. He was in his early 20s. He was a fine physical specimen. He was known as one of America's best wheelmen, which is what they called cyclists then. His bike weighed 50 kilograms and was a single speed. And though it was not much by today's standards, it almost got him around the world. The bike was taken off in popularity at the time. And the magazine had contacted him with the thought that this would be a good idea and he could send back travel reports. So he had a camera and he was going to take pictures of exotic places. He was eager for adventure and his mother pleaded with him, don't go because he was her only child. And once he got to Turkey, his reports went silent. 
We love stories about adventurers. We think of, if you think of Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way, which is sung at most stubborn people's funerals. Because we think that we can do it with enough hard work, ingenuity and confidence. It's the anthem of many people. I did it my way. It's a badge of pride. With enough guts, with enough bravado, we figure my way is always the right way, if it's right for me. If we're determined enough, if we're strong enough, if we're confident enough, we can even ride our bike around the world. I doubt I'll get to Cockermouth to let around around the world. But except sometimes our way is the wrong way. And sometimes if you try and ride your bike around the world with very little planning, you're not going to make it. Sometimes mother is right. Uh, Word of wisdom. Sometimes mum is right and you should be more careful. And sometimes plan B is a really bad idea. And sometimes the most courageous counter- cultural thing to do is to have faith and patience that God's way is best. Sometimes that's the the most courageous thing to do, is to trust and rest that God's way is better than our way. That's really the sermon in a nutshell, but I'm going to expand it a little bit more than that. So Genesis 16 verse 1, now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Bad idea. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servants your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered in Hagar. Bore Abraham a son, and Abraham called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar 
bore Ishmael to Abraham. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. This is a story, three scenes, four names, one big idea. Scene one. Plan B is hatched. And at the beginning of Genesis 16, Sarai has born no children. After all the drama of Genesis 15, if you remember just to go back a couple of weeks when we last looked at this, Genesis 15 says, Abraham said, O Lord God, what shall you give me? For I shall continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And Abraham believed. He believed the promises of God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. So after that tremendous promise, and then there was that, remember that dramatic covenant cutting ceremony, where the Lord walked between the torn animals and put himself upon himself the oath. But after all of that, no baby for Abraham and Sarah. The promise from Genesis 12 is threatened. Now the promise seems to be delayed, gone. Delayed beyond the point of rescue. Abraham was 75 years old when he got the promise. Sarai was 65 years old. This is 10 years on. Abraham is 85. When Ishmael is born, he's 86. Sarai is 75 and 76. The promise seems far-fetched. And even though they do live longer lives than we live today, this is not exactly when you think you're entering your child-bearing years. Anyone here who's age 75 will hope that is not the case. But for Abraham and Sarai, when she gets the word at 65, she probably thought it was a long shot. But as each week went past, as each month went past, as each decade went past, it seemed even more ridiculous, even more out there. In verse 2, Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from having children. She gave up. It's a true statement theologically. It's hard to consider the Lord's bitter providences. Think of Job. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. We do not know why God gives us hard providences. So a, there is a theological truth in what she's saying. This is sovereignly by the Lord's hand. But there is a hint of anger. God, this is your fault. You played with my emotions. You promised me a child. I waited ten years. What are you doing? Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So then Sarah hatches, Sarai hatches a plan. There's in my Egyptian servant girl. At the end of chapter 15, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Egypt was the very first place mentioned. So what about this Egyptian? 
The Egyptian servant is probably one of the people acquired from Pharaoh when they went down during the famine. And they left with great wealth, manservants and maidservants. That's likely how Hagar came to the family. So even though they left Egypt in Genesis 12 with great blessing, we see how these blessings have complicated their lives. God turned their sinful folly into blessing, but yet there are consequences. The possessions that they received were the reason they split with Lot. And here Hagar, likely received from the Egyptians, is going to be the source of complications for generations and generations. Plan A isn't working. What about plan B? Now this seems mind-bogglingly bogglingly stupid to us. At least I hope it does. Foolish and sinful. How on earth did they think that this could ever go well? Go to my servant that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now as utterly foolish and sinful, and I hope that is how it seems to you, you have to keep in mind that this was absolutely not out of the ordinary in the ancient world. It was actually acceptable according to the social customs of the day. Just like if you had trouble conceiving, you might go to the doctor. And the doctors are very helpful and we're thankful for what doctors do. This is probably just as ordinary to them. We have our technology, they had theirs. And we see stipulations for this arrangement in various codes and contracts and texts. Provisions that an infertile wife would procure another woman, normally a servant, to be another wife for her husband and a surrogate mother for her. The practice of surrogate motherhood attested over two millennia, two millennia in the ancient Near East from Babylon to Egypt. So they were eager to have children. God promised they would. This wasn't God's way, but it wasn't totally out of the ordinary. And it is a reminder for us that we need to step out of our own age. It's one of the reasons why I encourage you to read from dead people and listen to those who've gone before. It's very easy to go back to people in centuries ago, which is what we like to do in our world today, and accuse people of being guilty of chauvinism, racism or sexism. We can easily spot those things in generations gone. But they would also speak to us, and they would see the sins that are normal in our day. We are a sinful generation. We are a sinful world. And generations gone by would look at our world and say, what are you doing? So you have to bear in mind that this seemed normal. We are not perfect, whatever people think they are. They are definitely not perfect. This seemed absolutely normal, especially if you were a rich family like Abraham and Sarai, and you had a servant girl. This is what they did. So we need to sort of see it. We can't really read into it our own morals from our generation. But what were things that we might consider normal, conventional today, everyone does it. But if we stepped out and looked at our lives by scripture, we might realise what folly and what sin is going on. But Abraham and Sarai didn't see it. 
And Sarai gave Hagar to Abraham as a wife. And if you have your ears attuned to what we have seen in Genesis, you know this isn't going to go well. Because there are a couple of indications that this is the Garden of Eden and the fall all over again. I don't know whether you heard them as I read them. In verse 2, the end of the verse, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. The only other place that is found, that Hebrew construction, is Genesis 3.17, where the Lord said to Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife. Now men, men, this is not a statement to listen to your wife, it's how you get into trouble. It's usually a very wise thing to do. But here in the garden, Adam received a command. He knew better, but he was passive. And he listened to Eve. And here Abraham received the prompts, is passive, and listened to his wife. In both cases, they should have exerted God-given leadership and insight, but they were passive. And they went along with the schemes of Eve and Sarah. But there's another connection with the Garden of Eden. Verse 3. Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. The same two words are used in the Garden when Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam. It's another repeat of the Garden of Eden. Take, give to your husbands. Husband stands by and says, if this is what you want to do, we will do it. And in both of these cases, it results in harm to the people of God and to the family. They're repeating not only the mistake of Eden, but they're repeating the mistake that Abraham made in Egypt. Abraham went down to Pharaoh. He had a scheme. What was Sarai thinking in Genesis 12 when Abraham says, you are too beautiful? And she says, oh, thank you. So you're going to have to lie. And she ends up in Pharaoh's harem. Another way where a really foolish idea ends up with serious consequences. Did she do so reluctantly? Did she do so willingly? Did the episode cause a rift in their relationship? We don't know, and we don't know here. Did Abraham say this is a terrible idea? Or did he go along willingly? We see in a moment things don't go well. Chapter 15 is the chapter of faith where Abraham believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Chapter 16 is about a lapse of faith. And we see with Abraham and Sarai the ups and downs of human life. One moment they are sailing through, they're, they're, they're living victoriously, they believe in God, they're acting courageously and humbly. That's chapter 15. And in chapter 16 they're fallen flat on their face. So plan B is hatched. That's scene one. Scene two, plan B goes south. To no one's surprise, a plan which involved sending your husband to have relations with your servant girl does not go well. Hagar is proud, Sarai is jealous, and Abraham is passive. So what was supposed to be such a good idea didn't go well. Hagar is proud. As far as we can see, Abraham was intimate with Hagar one time. We do not get the indication this was repeated. He went into Hagar and she conceived. Think about the pain for Sarai, but think about the pride for Hagar. 
They probably had, when Hagar finds out she's pregnant, she's more than just a little bit pleased with herself. She looks with contempt on Sarah. And that Hebrew word translated contempt is the same word from Genesis 12, who dishonours you, I will curse. She is doing what God said do not do. God said you've got to run afoul of the blessing because you're looking with derision upon the promised couple. So things are not going to go well, Hagar, in your pride. Hagar is pride, proud, but Sarai is jealous. But you can imagine that, the pain. Not for the last time would there be this female rivalry, particularly over your family. It was excruciating. So she responds to Hagar's pride with jealousy and anger. You can look at verse 5. You do not know whether to laugh or to cry. Sarai said to Abraham, may the wrong be done to me be on you. I gave my servant your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Proverbs 30, 21, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. The slave when he becomes a king, the fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Abraham is passive, Hagar is proud, Sarai is jealous, and Abraham is passive. He would have had the opportunity to make this right, but he says to Sarai, he abdicates, behold, your servant is in your power, do to her as you please. In the ancient world, there was a provision for a rich woman to have her own maidservant, which is what Hagar is. Hagar belongs to Sarai, Sarai can do what she wants. Abraham is saying something true, but very unhelpful. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled. We don't know what that meant, physical, emotional, verbal, a cold shoulder, sarcasm, but it was harsh. And as so often in life, the victimised became the victimizer. It's true in life, true in relationships, hurting people hurt other people. One doesn't negate the other. Sarai must have been hurting so deeply. She wanted nothing more than to have a child. She devised a scheme. It went south. Her maidservant is pregnant with her husband. What could be worse? So she hurts. It was harshly with Hagar, and Hagar runs away. Where is Hagar going? She's going home. She's going by a dangerous path to Egypt. There is a profound, profound, disturbing irony for God's people in this story. We have an Egyptian slave free, fleeing an oppressive master, running through the wilderness of Sinai, where she'll be met by the angel of the Lord who will lead and protect her. In a few generations' time, what, what, what will happen? The opposite. Do you think, as Moses is writing this, do you think a light bulb go off and God's people saw before Egypt did this to us we did this to Hagar now not for centuries not on the same scale but they were the oppressors the Egyptian fled the Lord provided just as they would be slaves later by the Egyptians and had to flee for the Lord's mercy so plan B was hatched plan B goes south in the third scene plan B is salvaged in part 
were introduced for the first time in the Bible, by the way, to the angel of the Lord. In verse 7, 58 times in the Old Testament we have the angel of the Lord. In another 11 times the angel of God. There are all sorts of speculation as to who or what the angel of the Lord is. I think this is not so much a representative of Yahweh as it is a representation of Yahweh. The angel of the Lord seems to be the angel that is the Lord. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her. And look at what he said at the end of verse 11. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. In other words, it is the angel of the Lord, but then it is just the Lord. In other words, a visible manifestation of Yahweh. We do not know if he appeared as an angel, like described in Isaiah, with eyes and wings, or simply as a man. Or a man in bright colours, as often happens in the Bible. Or a fiery form. However, this is a visible manifestation of Yahweh, the angel that is Yahweh. And once again, God turns human foolishness into an occasion for blessing. Look at the blessing he gives Hagar. It's not identical to the, Ab- the Abrahamic promise. And you notice Ishmael is going to have a complicated history. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. And he'll be against everyone, everyone against him. It is foretelling the great difficulty that there will be in the family. It is not identical, but similar. Verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring, so they cannot be numbered for multitude. So though Hagar is not the line of promise, she's connected enough to Abraham's blessing that she will be blessed. God shows here non Salvation, blessing, even for those who are not ultimately of the chosen line. God will salvage this plan B, despite Abraham and Sarai. Three seeds. Plan B hatched. Plan B goes south. The angel of the Lord, in part, salvages it. Now notice four names. Four names in this passage, a name is spoken. The first is in verse 8, Hagar, servant of, Herod, of Sarai. This is the name that the angel of the Lord speaks to Hagar. Her name has already showed up, but Abraham and Sarai never mention her name. It is the angel of the Lord. To them, it's the servant, it's the Egyptian girl. But the angel of the Lord does. It's the only known instance in ancient Near Eastern literature where God addresses a woman by name. Abraham and Sarai will not even name her. She's the servant woman. But the Lord does. Hagar. He calls her by name. Hagar, servant of Sarai. He honours her. He dignifies her. He communicates to her that her blessing, is, her, in an earthly sense, is not going to come by throwing off all social habit and custom. She needs to submit herself to her mistress. What a hard word this must have been. The one who dealt harshly with her. The Lord says, go back and find relief. Not by discarding normal custom and boundaries and authority, but by honouring them. It's really interesting. So Hagar does as the Lord commands. And at the end she is there, bearing a son to Abraham. Here is a woman of faith and obedience. Hagar, 
named by the angel of the Lord. The second name is verse 11. You shall call his name Ishmael. You may have a footnote if you have a Bible with you which says God hears. And you can you know the Shema in Deuteronomy, hear O Lord Israel, the Lord our God. Can you hear that same Hebrew sound, Ishmael, hear O Israel, the Lord our God. God hears. The Lord has mercy on Hagar. He has heard her cries for help. Ishmael, the Lord hears. And then the third name is in verse 13. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. El Roy. It means a God of seeing or the God who sees. It is the only time in the Bible that a man or a woman confers a new name on God. Think about that. There are occasions where people give a God name to a place, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. But their name's given to a place. This is the only time in the Bible someone confers a new name on God, and it came from this Egyptian servant girl, Hagar. You are El Roy, the God who sees. So we have, we, we, we have the names of the Lord named Hagar, Ishmael, the God who hears, and Hagar infer, confers on God the name, the God who sees. And the fourth name is the well, called Beer Lahai Roy. Now Hagar's focus is not on her, I've seen the Lord, but on the one who has seen her. And these names reveal something powerful about God. He hears the cry of the destitute. He sees the pain of those who come to him in humility. As David will say, a broken heart, a contrite spirit, you will not deny. These, these names reveal what this passage is all about. God sees, God knows, God hears. He hears you, he sees you, he listens. And I wonder what it must have been like for Abraham as he named this son, born by the ill-fated plan B, when Sarai and Abraham thought there was no other way to have a child. So they took matters into their own hands instead of waiting on the Lord, and he names the child God hears. Well, maybe I should have cried out to him. God seeks out the sinful and rejected. God's concern for a revelation to Hagar. It's like Jesus dealt with a sinful Samaritan woman in John 4. Both are sinful women, not of Abraham's family. But the Lord reaches out with compassion. Hagar is the only woman in Near Eastern literature called by name by God. And she is the only person in the Old Testament who confers a name upon God. Hagar names Yahweh God sees. What a rebuke to Abraham and Sarai. Why did we not call out to him? Why did we not wait for him? Why do we have to learn from Hagar that our God is a God who sees? That our God is a God who listens? That our God is a God who hears? They tried to take matters into their own hands, which just leaves me 
to the conclusion, the big idea. Three scenes, four names, but one big idea. My dear friend, trying to accomplish God's ends with our ways is never a good idea. Trying to accomplish God's ends, because this was God's end, God promised this was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing, they weren't after the slaughter of the innocents. They wanted a child, a really good thing, and God had promised it. This was God's purpose, but they went about it their own way, and that is never a good idea. You may think, well, what is, what is so bad about it? After all, he's Abraham's son. Why isn't Ishmael the promised son? After all, he's got Abraham's DNA. It will not be any more Abraham's DNA with another woman. But the promise wasn't made to Abraham as a single man. It wasn't made to Abraham. It was the promise was made to Abraham, the husband of Sarah. My way, the right way, husband and wife, one man, one woman, the way. And as we see in chapter 12, when they take matters into their own hands, things end up no further along. Chapter 12, verse 10, there was a famine, they went down to Egypt. Chapter 13, verse 1, they go back up from Egypt. Now God blessed them despite themselves, but they didn't solve things. Chapter 16, we start, Sarai is barren. At the end of the chapter, she is still barren, except her maidservant has a child and Abraham has named him. Plan B didn't get them any closer to God's plan. By human calculation, it seemed like a good idea. Sarai probably thought it was the only way. But once faith was abandoned, problems multiplied, and there will be tension between Isaac and Ishmael, between the line of Isaac and Ishmael, for generations. This was the start of many complications. My friends, stick to the problems that God has given you. Don't go out and make new ones all on your own. It is true. God is sovereign over your life. We don't understand why he puts us in some of the predicaments he does. Why you have some of the bitter providences that you do. But when God gives them to you, he has a reason. Stick to the problems he gives to you. Do not make up new ones all on your own. Which is what they did. They created a whole new problem. Is there some place in your life right now, which maybe a, a teeny weeny compromise, but a place where you're tempted to do it your way? Because God's way isn't happening timely enough. Cheat on a test. Lie to cover your tracks. You think the ends justify the means. And God, doing things your way, just doesn't seem to be happening. So we'll find our way. Brothers and sisters, Genesis, Genesis 16 tells us that the life of faith means that trust in God is always the best way. No matter how far-fetched, how impractical, how delayed, how impossible it may seem. Has God given you a promise? And here is the most important area of application. Some of you recall in Genesis 4 that Paul allegorises Hagar and Sarah. He says they are two mountains. I mean, you see what Paul is up to, you understand. 
He's seen something profoundly theological in Hagar and Sarah, because he likens them to the story of law and gospel. And it's not the fault of Hagar, but it is simply the case in this story. The child from Hagar is always doing and always about doing things our way. And the child from Sarah is about doing things God's way. One is the way of works, that God needs our help to accomplish his saving purposes. And the other is the way of faith. No matter how long it takes, no matter how impossible it seems, we will wait for God to do things his way. When I was, when we were in Vienna, we had a guy come preach at our church. I'm trying to remember his name, but um, he was... He was from Algeria, and he, he, ha- he had a guitar ministry. So he, w- he would get on the train with his, with his guitar, which was full of unbelievers. And the minute the train started, he would sit and play hymns. And you know, they couldn't really get him off, do you know what I mean? So he had a captive audience. But and, you know, he, he, he saw quite a few people come to the Lord, and he had quite a ministry. But he told us about the ministry of Charles Marsh, I think it was. Who, who ministered for 40 years and had one convert. 40 years, one convert. By the world's standard, that is a failure. By God's standard, it is God's way. That's the way of faith. No matter how long it takes, no matter how impossible it seems, we will wait for God to do things his way. So Paul is right to see in Hagar and Sarah the story of law and gospel, faith and works. There are many applications from this chapter, but the most important one is this. Ask yourself the question, is God able to save me without my help, or does he require my assistance? Is there some bit of your confidence before God that is saying how clever you are, or how hard-working you are, or how your life is a little bit more on track than some other people? That is the way of Hagar. This is the way of faith. Human effort has no part to play in the fulfilling of divine promise. That is the most important lesson. When it comes to salvation, there is no plan B. It is God's way. He, Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. Faith doesn't come to God and say, God, look at my faith. Look at how much I believe. Look at what I can bring. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. God promised a child. I do not know how he will do it, but I'm waiting. God promised to save me apart from works, but I don't have any work, so I come. God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. And God has promised eternal life. So we come with the faith of an empty hand, trusting in his good time. And in his way, he will do it. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.